Top of the morning to you, or afternoon or evening, whenever you may be listening, my name is Scotty and welcome to episode 2 of season 2 of Chip Time. We have a packed show for you today. So much has happened in the last week of track and field records falling left and right for Division 1 and Division 2, and we are only going to touch the, the tip of the iceberg with track and field news at the end of the show because we have another special guest on today joining us to talk about his running journey and where it has brought him. It is Landon Melling of the Oakland University Golden Grizzlies. Really fired up to have him on the show. We were able to connect first last summer when I bought some shoes from him uh, before the crim, and then we were able to sit down actually right after I did my interview with Paul, which was on the last episode of Chip Time. So your boy was pulling double duty, essentially finished the interview with Paul, walked over, picked up a goo packet, cracked it, sent it, got right into the second interview. We're no days off right here, basically a threshold effort interview style, but I think you guys are going to enjoy that one quite a bit. Besides that, not much here else to say in the intro other than, first of all, thank you for the support. I really didn't know uh, what kind of listenership we would get in what I'm calling the beginning of season two of this podcast after my break that I talked about in the last episode, but we are really up to like the the level of uh, audience participation as far as streams and downloads go that we had before. So uh, I am very grateful for that. Um, I just do this for fun anyways. When my passion for the sport got to a point last May where I was so overflowing with enthusiasm that I just started talking into the microphone, I said from day one, it doesn't matter how many people listen. We just want the right people to be listening, people who enjoy this show. And so when I took that break in January, I thought we're kind of tanking because we have good metrics. We have good audience listenership. And when I came back with that first episode last week, I told myself the same thing. If we have seven or eight people listen to this, and they enjoy it, that is good enough for me. And we ended up getting a lot more than that, which I am grateful for. And uh, and it's, it is uh, encouraging to get a high audience participation because we do our best to bring you, the running fan and running enthusiast, the highest quality content in the business, both from a local and macro NCAA and professional scene. So I think you're going to enjoy this one quite a bit. We're going to get to our interview and then cap it off with some analysis and recaps of some of the the high-powered track and field action we had at Brian Clay, Mount Sac, Tom Jones, 
and also the Boston Marathon. But before that, let's get to the interview I had with Landon Melling at Run and Gear last week. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by a very special guest in one of the running capitals of not only Michigan, but the world. It is Run and Gear Waterford, and we are joined by Landon Melling. That's Correct. it. You got it. Of the Oakland Golden Grizzlies, here to tell his story, how he got into the sport, what he's up to right now. Maybe, and maybe how he got into this shoe game as uh, someone who dissects shoes in his free time. For sure. So, first of all, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for selling me the, the pair of shoes I, I picked up today. You sold me a couple pairs of shoes. Yeah, this would be the second one. <laughs> the, first one the first one you got a chance to try, if I remember correctly, was that Evo ride. It yes. was the Asics shoe, Yep. Um, which Asics have always been one of my favorite brands, um, mostly because they seem to be the only ones that fit my narrow little feet, right? Me as well. Um, and they, they just, they, they fit so well in the toe box and ugh, they're perfect. I and, and I remember going through those because I asked you, I was like, I'm looking for a neutral, kind of lightweight shoe, maybe something for tempo runs. I'm, I was good on the stability side of things. And I put on some Nike shoe that, that felt all right, but the Asics just fit like a glove. Mm -hmm. My shoe was like, this, this is what we want. But... You know, throwing it back to, there, there's different layers to this, right? So you don't just wake up as a running shoe salesman. You don't even just wake up as a runner. Right. There, There's a path even to that. So where did this journey begin for you? Was it as a, a teenager or perhaps even before? So my running journey started in middle school as uh, a tiny little sixth grader i had two older sisters who were both running cross country at the time my oldest sister was on varsity and she was part of a, the state championship team back in 2010 really small school went to hanover horton high school there was probably 50 kids in both of our graduating classes so not a big school that we went to um but she had been running cross country since middle school i think my parents just made her go out for it when she was in sixth or seventh grade um and she liked it a lot and i had always been up to that point when i would play sports in elementary i played baseball and soccer and i'd always been a competitive person the problem is, is that when you're competitive, but you really aren't good at something, uh, skill, yeah, skill, skill is the, it's the hang up. Exactly. And so that was frustrating because I wanted to be good at something, but I always struggled in these other sports. So I decided I would go and run cross country in sixth grade or my parents decided I would go and run cross country in sixth grade and very first race ever ran, finished second place. And I was stoked. I was like, wow, this is so much fun and i was like for once it feels good to be at least kind of getting close to winning and then after that through sixth seventh and eighth grade i think i lost one race the rest of my middle school career and that was the only race that i had dropped the whole time and i was like man this feels so good and every time i'm going to the line i was like there's just nobody that's going to beat me i'm just going to go out and do my thing every time so i'd pretty much fallen in love with it by after the first race, since I was about the only one that, that somebody was able to finish in front of me um, as a youngster. And then 
I had moved up to high school as, and as a freshman, very first 5K I ever ran, I think I ran like somewhere in the range of like 1725 or 1730, which at, at the time, you know, first race freshman year, 5K, is that's not terrible. Um, and I was on varsity from, from day one. And for a while, though, I, I had gotten humbled I, with our, our school, even though it was so small, we had a really good team. And we had a really good team all throughout high school. And so where I was used to being the big dog, even as a sixth, seventh, and eighth grader, I was now sitting, you know, fourth or fifth amongst some really talented guys. And I had the um, the huge benefit of having these guys to kind of follow and, and have mentor me all throughout my career. Um, a couple of them, Austin Shepard went and ran at Lansing Community College for a while. Um, a few other guys ran smaller schools as well. Um, and so it was nice to have some leadership uh, up front. And afterwards, after my, it was about my sophomore year, which more or less kind of finished about the same as my freshman year. That was when the first time I was like, all right, we got to do something a little bit different. Because I think I had ran maybe 1709 by the end of freshman year and then just cracked under 17 as a sophomore. And I was like, all right, I like what I'm doing, but I know that I could be taking my off season a little bit more seriously. So going into my junior year, that was when the switch really flipped for me was it kind of like increasing your mileage or intensity or maybe combination of both a little bit of both my dad had this thing that we ended up doing called the drop-off run which would be we would get in the car that's that's some classic dad coaching right yeah we would we would get in the car son i'm not going to tell you how long (laughs) you're about to run exactly well sometimes some days you wouldn't and some days i I wouldn't know but most of the time it would be in the ballpark of somewhere like eight nine ten miles somewhere in there and you can't short you can't shortcut you know when nobody's watching you or if you plan up a route in advance and you end up cutting it short or jogging it in there's you know there's no repercussions for it but when you have somebody who starts their watch the same time that you start theirs and then drives home and just waits for you to get back and they know how they they tripped it out in their car so they know how long it should take you to get back um you can't sell yourself short and I think that at the time I really hated it, but as I got older and got a chance to see like the results from it, I was like, oh man, that totally changed things. Um, because I knew a lot of people who really wanted to be good and really wanted to, but when it came time to like put in the work, they, they were nowhere to be found. Um, so junior year went a lot better than freshman and sophomore year. I had a pretty good start then, but ended up running 16.08 in cross country. Um, and I think I finished sixth or so at the state meet. And that was like the first time where I was like, okay, now we're starting to get somewhere with it. And then track season, junior year even then was a, a build upon that where I ran 417 for the mile, um, 155 for the 800. And that was in the same day, actually, at the state meet and finished second and third in both of those races. And I, I mean, at that point, I was already hooked. I was just... That was as somebody who just was competitive and just wanted to win all the time, or just at least do the very best that I could. I was just, just so amped up about it. Senior year, that was where I was thinking, I'm like, all right, now it's it's finally gonna be time. Like, State we're, champ yep, time. Yep, we're gonna we're gonna pull it out. And 
in a way I got what I wanted because senior year cross country, we won the team state championship. And that was something that honestly, I, I still looking back, like if I had to choose between trying to win an individual championship or a, or a team, you know, state one, I would still take the, the team state championship every time because it was the feeling of coming back home on the bus with all those guys, you know, like people would be happy for you if you'd have won a state individual title. But when you're all getting to celebrate together and it's something that you would work for all season, that's, that's, always... that's definitely the diplomatic answer. Right. You know, I, I lay in bed at night. I'm like picturing a gold medal <laughs> around my neck. Right. <laughs> exactly. But you know, and that's, that's the thing too, is we had talked about it all season long and my freshman year, I think we finished third, my sophomore year, I think we finished fourth or somewhere around there. And then my junior year, we finished third again. So we had been so close. And, you know, at the state meet, top two are on the podium. And we're like, we're not walking out of here without at least getting on the podium. I'm like, but we all knew on the bus ride there, like, this is this is the plan. Like, this is what we're going to do. Was and, it was it a pretty experienced team, like upperclassmen? Yes, up up front. So we so myself and and Bo Shepard, who he's running club at Michigan right now, and he's absolutely killing it. He ran last. I don't know what this spring, but last spring he ran thirty thirty for ten k on the track. So yeah, he. I have no clue why Michigan has not had his phone number on on dial to uh, to get him out for the team. But he's had a, a really good running career in high school and even in the club level at college as well too. And so up front he had ran about 16 flat. I think I had ran 15:37 as a as a senior in high school. And then after that we had a lot of like sophomores and juniors who um, who were kind of on the rise and who we knew going into the season that we those were the guys that we really had to to have lock in. And it's so funny too because my senior year my brother was on the team and he was a sophomore and he was our fifth runner most of the year. And so at the state meet, uh, every, you know, that home stretch at MIS where it's all mud, usually, especially if you're in like a division, division one, like you were, oh, yeah. it's always torn up by that point. So the course was in a little bit better shape, but my brother at the time was probably about five foot three and he's this little sophomore <laughs> running along and he was in fifth for our team. And there's footage of him crossing the line later on where he's just ducking and weaving through people. Like everyone's way taller than him and he's just scooting his way through. Well, we ended up winning the meet by six points. So if it wasn't for my brother passing, you know, six or seven people in the last 50 yards, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't have won. So it was really him who ended up coming through and we really had to rely heavily on those, on those younger guys. And no, man, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the most hype things about cross country is the fact that every runner counts to the team score equally that top seven in high school, top five in college. And I was like our number four runner in college. And I just remember that it was like, right. I know I'm not good enough to win these races, but if I blow up and finish in the back of the pack, it's going to hurt the team a lot more than if I hold it together and at least maintain a position in the middle. Right. And the other thing that's kind of funny is you mentioned like you guys are state champs. That is something that is like not a lot of people experience. Right. But the funny thing about cross country state champs specifically is like, if you were to see, if you were to see a group of teenagers and say, this is a state championship football team, you'd be like, okay, like I can believe that. Mm -hmm. 
you see a group of state champion <laughs> cross country runners, you're like, are wait really? Right. Like, are you sure this isn't like the robotics team? I know that's and that's exactly how it was too. Our our cross country team, we always took pride in the fact that we were quite literally the misfits of 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 everything else. We just we couldn't fit into any other thing, so this is where we ended up with. And I think that though that piece of it is what made it so much sweeter when it was all said and done, because none of us, you know, should have been in that position, but because we we found this this sport that we all happen to be pretty decent at and where people felt that team environment and that camaraderie which you really can't get from any other sports so i played basketball even until my sophomore year and played a couple other sports and you just can't you just can't get that same team environment that it is at a cross country the team dinners and the um the the bus rides back from from meets and all that stuff so um yeah i was i was very fortunate to be surrounded by um, those guys, when I was an underclassman and then as I got older, I was able to pass off some of that kind of advice or leadership to those younger guys. Did you enjoy track quite as much as cross or did you feel like it was a bit more individual of a dynamic? I noticed very early on that I was better at track than cross country. Me too. Yeah. And, and it was just because I, I was a little bit on the quicker side. Most, <clears throat> most of the, the people, you know, you mentioned not looking like state championship, but I, I have a little bit of a basketball background. You know, I'd done some other sports. I played football when I was younger too. So I would like to think that I'm a little bit more athletic than the average distance runner. Like I can do a couple other things. So for me, um, I noticed that when it was time to run a mile, that there were people that would beat me in cross country from other schools who I, I could I could take them on the track. I could take them in a mile or an 800, sometimes even a two mile. And I loved the consistency. I lived and breathed on athletic.net when I was me in too. high school. Oh yeah. Where I would look up everybody's times. I wanted to know, it was literally a two a day thing because some, sometimes the meet results wouldn't get posted to like the evening. Sometimes they were there in the morning or whatever. So I would look at night before I went to bed. And then when I wake up in the morning and then our whole lunch table with all the other cross country kids, like, did you see who ran this, this, this at this place? And we'd always talk about, on legit courses or courses that were too fast in cross country and there's none of that in track you know everybody's running on the same 400 meter mm -hmm. loop so when you see a really impressive time on cross country you kind of put a mental asterisk next to it whereas on the track you know it's universal so i always liked track a little bit more just for that reason and it was easy to compare yourself against other people in, in different days and different races and when you guys were checking athletic.net who were like the big runners at the time? Like who were throwing down like the sub four ten miles or, or you know sub nine thirty two hundreds? Well, the one big one that went ended up you know at your school at Northwood was Brian Patrick, who was in yeah who was in Division three. Yeah, he, he was, was one of the big dogs. He was a big dog, and and he was. I always, recruited him. I'll take credit for that. Yeah, and, went out for a long run <laughs> with him. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a he's an interesting guy too at least from my my running with him and 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 very talented runner as well too and he was somebody that i i got to see him when i was an underclassman and he was quite a bit faster than me at the time so watching him you know beat me by 30 45 seconds a, a minute when i was you know a freshman and then being able to close that gap and then in a couple of races get the better of him 
felt really good. Um, another one teammate at Oakland was Yami Albright, who I had raced against quite a bit in high school. And Caro finished second to us that year that we won the state meet. And it felt really good to be him because most races he usually got me individually, except for, I think, the mile at States my junior year. So I think my all-time record against Yami is like 1-18 in 18 or something like that. But <laughs> You, you I, got the 1. But we got the 1 and the state championship, you know, to go with it. So it was like he was another one too where we would where we would check up on times across the board so those two come to mind um uh, there was a kid from st louis as well evan something who was also really good he was like a low nine two miler um so there was just a lot of guys that we would always look and then we would compare ourselves to other divisions too since a lot of times we had a hard I'm not even trying to say it to like come across as cocky or whatever. But we had a hard time finding people who who teams who were comparable to us. Like when we would go to the conference meet, we would know that we were about to either sweep it or, or win it handily. And same with our region. So we would look and see what other schools and other divisions were running, and then get like a better gauge from there. Because, I, I had the yeah. opposite problem uh, in college. Yeah, I'd toe the line for these eight Ks and be like. All right, who's running 29s? Right, yeah, exactly. Well, college is a different story. And us at Oakland, you know, being a lower tier Division One, and then you look and you see, like, at the regional, like, Wisconsin's in the box to your right, and then, like, Notre Dame's in the box to your left and stuff like that, and you're like, oh, this is about to be, this is about to go pretty bad. So I've been on both both sides of the equation, and I, I, can, I can tell you it's better to be the big dog and then it is to to stand to your right and know you're about to get pummeled. So well, it's it's really nostalgic for me thinking back to athletic.net. And the reason I asked you that is because when you're a high schooler and you're a teenager, and these people on the site, these times you're seeing, they're also teenagers. It's very they're they're mortals, right? They're right. humans to you. It's not like you're looking at galen rupp's times right you're it's someone who you're in the same race as these athletes and even if they're much faster than you they're from a town you've been to they're from a town or a city not too far from you well when i was in high school the person who was the big name on athletic.net was grant fisher that guy yeah and i remember um I had just broken five in the mile for the first time, right? It's like a 17-year-old. And I'm like, I wonder who has the fastest mile in the state this year. And it's this sophomore from Grand Blank named Grant Fisher with like a 410. Mm -hmm. I'm like, wow, that's that's pretty good. But still, it's like, oh, he's from Grand Blank. Like, I've gone there before. That's really good. But now that I've seen him <laughs> win a national title at Stanford run for Bowerman, be fifth in the Olympics, yeah, and now break Rupp's records, the outdoor 10K and the indoor 5K. It's pretty wild, man, to like put myself back in that 17-year-old checking athletic.net. Right. So it's, uh, it's cool to see your peers, and for you, probably some people you've run against in college, where they're going to go in the future. And with a guy like Grant, too, it's it's one of those where it's like what is it that separates him from us you know like type of deal like what what is it about him that what was he do and you you want to like think about all the details and then you get way too into it and you think about all the small things and you're you, sometimes you get lost along the way and it's just yeah it's always hard because yeah you're like 
what is what is this guy doing so differently? Like I go to practice, you know, I I I I put my my shoes on in time the same way as he does, but here he is, you know, as a. I, I think Olympian. his his career is just a testament to doing all the small things to the highest quality you can, which like I certainly have not. I certainly didn't when I was in college. Neglected sleep, nutrition. I just was one of those guys who was like, I'm training so hard that I don't need to really do right. that stuff. But Grant, with activation drills and from what it sounds like, everything in the weight room, like he gave 100% focus to each of those things. So, you know, didn't didn't mean to go down that rabbit hole, but it is something that we can kind of like apply to our training you know me and and the other hobby joggers is like go for that quality mileage over just lacing up the shoes after sitting for eight hours and like hurting yourself (laughs) yep exactly so you mentioned you know college being kind of a humbling experience the playing field not only leveled but in some cases you're like whoa this is an uphill battle how was that transition from being state championship cross country team, one of the top runners in your division in, in the state, to like, whoa, I'm in the box with like yard and a goose. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And it was it was hard. And I even on an academic level, like that transition to from high school to college was really tough coming from a really small farm town with like 50 people in my graduating class, like our graduation ceremony took like 30 minutes because it was so easy to get through everybody to, to going to Oakland, which granted isn't the biggest school on, on planet earth, but we're, we're still talking, you know, a 20,000 student campus with um, just, you know, a 30 minute drive away from Detroit. Like it's in a pretty big, it's in a pretty big place. So that already was was hard enough. And then getting to the competition level, I think the hardest thing was how much of a lifestyle it had been adopted. Like that was something that I had, it, I mean, I, I truly never got my head wrapped around it. Um, you know, even today now being done at that really competitive level or at least kind of stepping away from the team, like I look back and I'm like, I, I still never really got to the point of doing all the like little things and some people could could still like get away with it I would notice which was always frustrating too because then you start comparing yourself to other people who are kind of doing the same type of thing as you but then when it comes down to race day they're outperforming you as well so it was it was really tough and probably the hardest part was over the three years that I ran at Oakland I never had a, a race that I was able to walk away from that left me feeling like really content or like really satisfied with it. So the closest I think I ever came was when I ran, uh, they, we had a cross country meet at Notre Dame um, and I ran like 25.40. I think that was the fastest I had ever ran an 8K. And even still, I when I got done with the race, I was like, I could have been I could have been a lot better. And so I had just struggled um, a lot transitioning. I, my, all of my track PRs are still from high school. So I never broke my mile PR or even or the 1500 equivalent or an 800 or anything like that. And it wasn't because I was hurt all the time or because like I wasn't trying. 
it was, I think a lot of it just was that I just couldn't adapt as well as some other people did, especially to like the training um, where the volume got up and became more intense. So it was, it was always hard because yeah, you would, you would tell the line against and people you remember from high school who are now, you know, like winning regional championships or, or NCAA all Americans and people that you compared yourself to at once upon a time, which is always, always tricky as well too. Yeah. It's, it's difficult when you're in some of those lows and I, I was more on the injury side of things like being someone who was a walk on, not that talented. And then you get dealt this hand of like, now I have to cross train and have therapy for however many weeks, build back up to full-time running and then build up to a fitness level that I can maybe finish in the middle of the pack. And I think for some people who maybe aren't as serious of runners, they might hear that and be like, why didn't you just quit? Like, why, why would you handle that stress when you have school on top of that and whatnot? So I guess as we transition to the store and your, your passion for just the sport overall, given that you've gone through those challenges, how do you maintain that passion for running shoes, the whole landscape, and what brought you to wanting to, to work here and fit people for shoes? Well, even outside of running itself, I'd always been kind of a shoe geek, as you were talking with Paul earlier. I'd always been into a lot of different shoes. Also, as a basketball player, you know, I had a, a pretty large collection of basketball shoes and other kinds of shoes. What was, what was your favorite basketball shoe? Uh, I'm still a huge fan of the Kobe's. The low-cut Kobe's are, are one of my favorite-looking shoes of all time. I only had a couple pairs of them, but, man, they are such a good-looking basketball shoe, even though I probably cost me a couple ankle injuries along the way because oh, they yeah. were those low, <laughs> low-cut shoes, and they were just something different though and which is what I think I've always gravitated towards with a running shoe or with a, a a dress shoe or a basketball shoe or any type of shoe so I like things that are different and they're outside of like the norm and so I started collecting shoes when I was a freshman in high school I still have all of my spikes and a lot of other shoes like air forces and things like that my feet never grew thankfully um so i would i have this large collection that i had accumulated over time and i have a picture of my um dorm and my sophomore year and i just have boxes and boxes i had like not even an exaggeration like 60 boxes of shoes just everywhere and so when we had to move out at the end of the pandemic and everything i had to i had um get a u-haul yeah i had my my dad myself and my girlfriend all three had our own like moving bins that with the wheels on them and everything and they were all three filled oh my to the brim with shoes like it was it was a it was bad to the point where it's probably problematic but I had always been enticed with shoes and the technology and the evolution of shoes. And you had mentioned, too, how just in the last couple of years, how much shoes have really evolved. And that has not helped somebody who's a shoe enthusiast. Oh, yeah. Because as you just see all this new stuff that's coming out, you just want to try it. You know, you just want to see what that feels like or what that something even just looks cool and it catches your eye. So I had always been in it from that point, which when I was looking for a job a little over two years ago now, um, I was like, well, this is perfect. Like, I like to run. I like shoes. Like, I, you know, running shoe store like 15 minutes from campus, this is perfect. So I came in and talked to Paul, which I told him too about how oftentimes I like to, to 
just just messing around with old shoes or shoes that are worn out, I would chop the the sole off of the shoe or like an upper, and I would put a different upper on. Some of them you would have to like stitch, or some of them you would glue. It would kind of depend on the shoe. But I would make these Frankenstein shoes. You like Sid from Toy Story? Yes. With shoes. Yes. Just combining parts where I would take like. I would be like, well, I really like the cushion on, say, like a Brooks Glycerin, but I want to know what it would feel like with a fly knit upper, like a Nike upper. So I'd cut the Nike off, the Nike upper off, and then I would, you know, glue it to the Brooks, and then I would, I, I wouldn't do a whole lot of running in it. I'd just be like, wow, this looks really cool. <laughs> and I would do this and just kind of repeat. And anytime I would get old shoes, or if somebody was about to throw out a pair or anything like that, I'd be like, hey, you. Let me let me let me grab that pair real quick. They're old running shoes or whatever, and I would just start start stitching stuff together. So I would always get interested. And then the with the Olympic trials or the Olympics, where some of these sponsored athletes, as we were talking about earlier, how if they they want to wear these high end Nike shoes, but they're not sponsored by Nike. So they're doing all these kind of funny things like turning the uppers inside out or, or spray painting them and, and all these modifications. So I think it's interesting enough to see how the shoes have evolved. But then when you are able to like do your own evolution of the shoes, it's a lot of fun as well. And I will say the average customer probably wants a non experimented shoe correct right they, they they might feel safer having what the actual company is manufactured that's true when it goes to fitting someone for a shoe and asking them some questions trying to find what they're looking for and then going through that process in your head of which shoes should i go to the back and grab for them how does that process go and also do you believe that there's like a right running shoe for everybody. I, I am, the saying goes, the wand chooses the wizard. And and in this case, I feel like I'm at that wand shop from Harry Potter where you're just grabbing whatever brand and whatever year shoe off the rack. I feel like everyone really has, uh, maybe not a specific shoe, but a type of shoe. We were talking about the narrow A6 toe box earlier that caters to them. So how do you go through that process and what's the feeling like when you fit someone in that perfect shoe? That is honestly a, a, an amazing question. And it, the truth is that it varies from person to person. People think I get oftentimes where they'll say, hey, dumb question. But oftentimes it, it's about to be some of the best question or one of the best questions that I've heard. And the truth is, again, it will vary from, from person to person ultimately looking at somebody's gait, just watching them walk around in their socks can tell a huge story or if they have a really old shoe, which is another thing too. People get insecure if they walk in with a really beat shoe. And I'm like, this actually tells me so much right. about what kind of foot you have. Because if I'm, I look at the shoe and depending on what kind of shoe it is and how the shoe is worn, you're able to get a good idea on what their foot wants to do as well too. So, when it comes down to knowing what type of shoe it is, I'm now to the point where it's it's very I'm very comfortable with it, and I know a lot of times like what exactly it is. Paul might have told you about supply issues or things that have happened over the last couple of years that have made it more tricky. Where sometimes you go back here now to look for the specific shoe that you want, 
and it's just nowhere to be it's just nowhere to be found um which is always really hard because you you have like the solution and you know the solution in your head and you can't pull it to try it um I just had a, a gentleman call while you were setting up who was asking about the Brooks Dyad, which is a one of those few shoes that has like a dual-sided support to it. And they haven't really had any for us in the last two years. And he was looking for an 11 4E, you know, like a really tough tough shoe and a tough size. And I was like, I got, I got nothing for you. So <clears throat> once you get an idea on the shoe, then a lot of it will come down to knowing what what certain features or characteristics that certain brands have you were perfect with the the asics comparison asics and nike i find tend to fit me really really well because i have a very narrow foot and a lot of time and my foot actually works as like a really good sampling because i'm very neutral and my foot is like very narrow and i wear a really small size for my height even so like i'm like six foot two and i wear like a size nine most of the time so i i think of myself as like a pretty good sample size and because i've had this experience with so many different shoes i know like just from like a feel perspective because some people don't want to go into all the nerdy details about the shoe so i just know you how gotta sell them though exactly give them the shop talk exactly and and it depends from person to person too you know the 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 75 year old customer looking for uh an orthopedic shoe does not care about the tech versus you know a, a upcoming high school runner so you kind of have to gauge like how much you spill to them as well too but once you have an once you have an idea on the foot and then you know how sort of each brand fits and feels and you know the varying kind of stabilities and your own experience with the shoe which i think is important too because once you if you've tried a shoe yourself you're able to know like certain things one really common issue that people have is sometimes the toe will poke out on a shoe mm -hmm. so like their toe will blow through the the top of the toe one of my box. teammates was notorious for that exactly and that's not really supposed to happen with a shoe but with with some shoes like one of them that uh was last year's version of the 860 it was a new balance shoe where the upper that they used was this really tough engineered mesh and i haven't seen anyone go through that so if somebody's like hey I've been wearing this stability shoe last couple of years, but every time I come in or every time I get six months into the shoe, I'm blowing out the toe cap. Try this shoe, see how this one works out. And a lot of times it, it, it does a lot better job because it's kind of a little bit of trial and error. And that is what ultimately leads people to finding the perfect shoe for them is it usually doesn't have, most people are not lucky enough that it's the very first shoe that they try that is like the, the one or the brand that's the one. But if you try a couple different things and then you get an idea, like the, the more feedback you get, the easier it is. Okay, I wore through the toe cap on this one and I wasn't crazy about the cushioning on this one. Well, all that feedback you can internalize and then it's really easy to pick out a shoe that kind of brings all of these together. So in a way you're creating that Frankenstein like combination of like ch cutting and chopping shoes, but just given with what the shoe manufacturers have done with so many different models that they have now, it's easy to like take in all those different factors. It's like eHarmony, how there's a uh, percentage match based on different factors exactly at least that's what i've heard exactly yeah it's a, it was the same type of deal you know and and you just gotta be able to know like certain things about shoes and the, the more shoes that you've been around the more you know these like little weird things about it so it's just a kind of a combination of combining like little weird 
trivial pieces of knowledge about shoes and then you can kind of help somebody get one step closer anyway to to finding that perfect shoe for them well i'm pretty stoked to to start running in in the pair i just picked up yes. since it's the endorphin shift too just some slight modifications yes. from the first one i could feel it a little bit just walking around because when you put 600 miles in the same pair of shoes and then you put on the next version you're like i remember the old version right but well it, and that'd be fun to break it in and that's where it gets tricky too because as shoes change from year to year you know certain and there are times where depending on what those little things are that you observed or that they told you about that you might not want to pull the newest version of a shoe better to give them a shoe and also doesn't hurt if we're closing it out or whatnot as well to a, a shoe that's a couple of years old because it has a certain feature mm-hmm. or that they took away or something from another brand as well too so it's always tricky following it but most of the time you realize that they're kind of following they they don't totally reinvent a shoe most times from year to year it's just little tweaks so as long as you're kind of just staying up to up to date on what they change the little things it's pretty easy to kind of keep it all in the back of your head absolutely well i know we're we're coming up on our time here together a uh, couple quick questions I'll, I'll fire off at you before we let you go. I think the first one we got to ask, we mentioned some athletic.net, looking at some of your competitors during high school, broader landscape, NCAA professionals. Do you have a favorite runner or a, a favorite couple runners? My favorite runner of all time to follow up on is Nick Simmons. Really? Yes. He Well, first of all, he's got this YouTube channel, which I a know, lot of people think I is know. corny, and I can already tell looking at you that you think it's kind of corny. I think it's hilarious, though. I think, he's, I think he is honestly very down-to-earth. And here's the thing, too. A lot of these these runners who have made it, and I've talked to other people at the college level or even at the pro level who I've met, um, like I met Alan Webb at a cross country meet one time and I'll, I'll put it like this. I don't think he was the nicest person I've ever met. Now maybe I've caught him at a bad time or whatever, but comparatively to somebody like him, he's at least nice and he's at least personable. And a lot of these runners, these kind of, sometimes if they're outcasts or misfits like us, they're, they're not very personable and sometimes they're not that nice. So he is, I, I'll, I'll say it wholeheartedly. He is my favorite to follow up on. Um, and I still watch a lot of his YouTube videos all the time, but I know some people think he's kind of cringy. So, <laughs> I mean, he, he is a little bit, he, he's may not be my favorite, but I always respected the way he ran the 800 because he was in that era with Dwayne Solomon when Dwayne Solomon was like, I'm going to go out in a 45 or a 48, mm-hmm. excuse me, you go on a 48, 400 and try to hold on where he'd be in the back, basically a, like a David Rudisha. But you're right. Simmons would go for that close split. He would go out in like a 52 and hold on with like a 54 and and win American championships. So I always respected the way he ran, even though I maybe wasn't. I was a Galen Rupp guy. Yeah. Um, And that was more just when I was a teenager. He was in the Olympics and, and all that stuff. And I was a fan um, of, of Rupp as well. But what I also like about Simmons is that he literally defied the laws of physics with his running. This short, stocky guy who was able to, you know, run 142 for the 800. So he was built completely different than the rest of his competition, which I always admired that that he 
he was not dealt the greatest hand genetically, but was able to turn this this great running career out of it. So I have a lot of respect for him on that end. So that's that's a good sales pitch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can I can warm up to to Simmons exactly exactly. So even if you're not crazy about him as a person, you got to respect that he made the most of everything that he had. And that 142.9 or whatever he ran in the Olympics, it was, was he probably got the 100% out of himself, which even some of even some other Olympians or other professional runners may not be able to say that they got. So That's true. Yeah. And uh fellow small school guy. So Yeah, Division uh, 3 guy. Yeah. Division 3 guy as well. Well, the last one I got for you here, you, you mentioned, um, you know, stepping away from the team and and taking some time. Do you have any plans for your future in running? Is it on the track trying to use your speed while you got it? Or are you maybe looking at uh, road races, half marathons, marathons? Well, I hope to be a lifelong runner and I want to maintain some level of competitiveness like in that old man age. Like I want to hopefully be one of those guys who's still able to run like decently fast as I get older. Um, I want to take it over to the track eventually and get a chance to see. I was hoping to get in a couple races this spring. 18 credits and graduation has made that looking like we'll we'll push that back at least for a few months now but i'm still running quite a bit and and still in pretty good fitness and hopefully able to translate that to something maybe onto the track or if i uh, get an opportunity to run a couple road races this summer i'm definitely gonna look around for some of those too so we will we will see but i will continue to stay in shape over the next few months and kind of see what happens that hey that's the way to do it i mean having general fitness is a great starting point and then you can build a training block off of that exactly versus just saying oh i'm not in a training block for a race so i'm just not gonna get in shape then you're just setting yourself up for failure so you're right yeah that's that's the way to do it well maybe our paths will cross in some road race uh you can give me the pity clap as i finish a couple minutes (laughs) behind uh in my endorphin shifts i just bought from you but this is fun. Thanks for being generous with your time and, and joining the show here. And I am sure I will be in again at some point, either for some shoes uh, or I'm always running low on body glide. So uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll be in at some point. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. I certainly was very appreciative of Landon's time and all the stories he walked us through, uh, as well as what he's what he is up to now. But I also just want to go on the record here that I am not a Nick Simmons hater per se. Just want to clear that up. Uh, although there was an incident that sort of led me in that direction, I guess you could say, and uh, I will I will air that out here just to put my grievance out there, and then it's up to you if you feel like this is justified or not. So years ago, when I was a collegiate runner, yes, a long time ago, Nick Simmons was still pro, and he had a contest on his Instagram where it was like a giveaway. Uh, He would probably like sign some spikes, and whoever won it would get the spikes, And you had to follow his account, like the post, and comment, and like tag a friend. And it's, you know, so more people will see the post, and it'll get more interaction. Well, 
I did that and I tagged one of my teammates, one of my female teammates at the time, and she ended up doing the same thing to enter the contest. So she liked the post, followed him, or tagged someone else in the comments. And although neither of us won, the issue for me was that he liked her comment and he did not like my comment. The initial comment, mind you, and uh, 20 or 21-year-old Scotty did not take very kindly to that and a grudge was born against Nick Simmons because of the lack of consistency, okay? So anyways, that is water under the bridge at this point. I'm looking at the things we have to cover here as we wrap up the show, and we're going long already, so I'm going to do my best to move through this in a timely manner, and I promise I cut out as much as I could, but there was so much that happened this weekend. If you are a fan of track and field, if you follow any sort of Instagram account or running related media, you know that this was just a crazy ocean of elite results. So we're going to start. I'm really just picking my top two races from last weekend, and then we're going to preview one meet coming up. So first, as far as Mount Sac goes, this is one that I previewed last week. I did say this could be the best race of the meet, the women's 5K, and I personally think it was. When you look at a couple different facets of the race, elite professional dominance, Division One and Division Two, it had it all. So as far as the winner of the race, it was Carissa Schweitzer, 15.02 for the win, run like there's pancakes at the finish line. She certainly did. Has the potential definitely to be a sub-15 runner. I mean, she's obviously been in that form previously. So it's not like the time um, really blew me out of the water, but it is good to see that type of fitness level. Knowing that Coach Jerry Schumacher peaks these men and women on the Bowerman team for championship racing, this year being the world championship. So I think she's going to be improving great result, but this was just a couple seconds over second place Emily Infeld, formerly of Bowerman, and I was very encouraged to see a 1505 from Emily. Uh, Number one, she's going through a team transition from Bowerman to, I think she's working with uh, John Green now, Molly Seidel's coach, And uh, they are calling themselves, I think, the Verde Track Club, which is just hilarious. It's like green is, uh, the Spanish word for green is Verde, and they train in Camp Verde, Arizona. So the Verde Track Club. But man, I just wanted to highlight the fact that I'm extra supportive of Emily Infeld. And I think you should be too. Uh, We support everyone in this sport, not named Paul Chalimo. And, but there are some runners like Emily Infeld who have been through so much. 
in their personal lives, that when you see them come back to a level of competition like this, 1505, she will be a factor at the Trials for Worlds, you have to be like extra appreciative of what they're doing now. And what she went through the last couple years, you can look up the article just by like Googling her name. Um, I certainly don't have enough time to to break it down today, but the the summary of it is that there was a man who basically stalked her for like three years and it started as like cyber stalking and then it became like he moved like two miles from her yeah like crazy crazy stuff that she had to put up with for a long time and the man is in prison now um and and it's a very fascinating story because like he had brain damage and you know there was like a lot of you feel bad for both sides when you when you read through but um the the big reason i was so grateful to see this result from her is there must have been a mind shift to even become comfortable just going out for runs solo after she went through all that and I think she had to run on the treadmill for for quite a bit of her training um, in in years past. So that that was the the long and short of it with Emily Infeld was even though she didn't get the win here per se, seeing that time, seeing her compete, seeing her on this trajectory to a potential world team or at least uh, being competitive at the trials um, is it, good for the sport, and you're just happy to see a person like that be able to succeed. Okay, Division 1 as far as this 5K, two huge results. Abby Nichols, who already was leading Division 1 in the 5K, lowered her mark to 15-15. That is number 8 all time. And Mercy Chilangot of Alabama ran 15-17, which is number 10 all time. But wrapping up the Mount Sac Women's 5K, I did have to mention just some Division II dominance. The Adams State Women's Program is on fire right now. Roy Sheen Flanagan of Adams State, 1528. That's a Division II 5K record. First ever woman in Division II under 1530. And I also just wanted to shout out her teammate, Brianna Robles, who ran the 10K, uh, 32.50, which is number four all-time in Division Two. And fun fact, Robles, who ran that 10K, is the indoor 5K Division Two record holder. So Adam State just on an absolute tear. And in my opinion, that was the race of the meet at Mount Sac. But we have one more track meet from last weekend we have to cover. And it is, of course, Elliot Kipsang of Alabama running the 1500 meter NCAA record at Brian Clay. We didn't have heat sheets for this one, so I didn't know exactly who would be there. But this was a fast race, and I know that is inherent with it being an NCAA record, 
But this was no Yared Nagoose time-trialing solo at the ACC prelims in 2021 when he ran that 334. This was a race with professionals, top collegiates, you name it, and everyone was in it. There were so many sub-340s at Brian Clay between all the heats. I think, including professionals, there were like 30 guys under 340, which is crazy. That's so fast, and it's never not going to be weird to me that you could run 339 and like not qualify for NCAA Outdoor Nationals in today's day and age but you know this particular race by by Kipsing was I don't want to say it was out of nowhere but it has been interesting how many times the 1500 record has gone down just the last few years Josh Kerr 2018 Nagoose last year which was the first ever sub 335 and now Kipsing and I gotta say, as much as as much as I said, you, you're a little bit surprised by this result. I can say overall, I am not surprised for one particular reason: the weekend it occurred. If it occurred any other weekend, I would be surprised that the 1500 meter record went down, but not this weekend. And why is that? The name Elliot, which is also the first name of our, uh, our, our, one of our favorite athletes, Elliot Kipchoge, it is a Hebrew name, which means God is my praise. And what weekend, what holiday weekend was it last week? It wasn't Halloween. If I remember correctly, it was not Valentine's Day. It was not Columbus Day either. It was Easter weekend. And my goodness, for him to turn up like that Easter weekend, it just made sense. It was a legacy race. And if you watched it, he surged like crazy the last 80 meters up that stretch. It was almost like he glanced at his watch like it was a workout and he was off pace. Uh, perhaps he was trying to run the record and wanted to make sure he was under it. But if he would have started that with 150 to go, dude could have run 332 low. But he bolts through the line. He stops his watch at the line. Alpha male Strava move. And I actually do follow him on Strava. And the most alpha thing of this entire operation is the fact that he didn't even change the name of the run uh, to say like NCAA record 1500. It just says evening run. So that is some alpha stuff right there. 333.7, that is cooking. And the question is, we don't have time to really dive into it today, is he the favorite for the national champion? Because you've got Nagoose who is the former record holder and has won that title before. And you have Mario Garcia-Romo, who just won the indoor mile championship. So, I don't know. That's a question for another day. But real quick, 
Got to put one meet on your calendar for this weekend. It is, of course, the Oregon Relays at Hayward Field in Eugene, Oregon. Let me get my heat sheets out here. Um, I know we're running short on time, so I'm just going to point out a couple names and a couple events here. Got to be real, people. You know I love these ladies races, but there really weren't any crazy fields on the women's side, but on the men's side, there are a few we got to go over. First of all, men's 1500. This is going to be late Friday night, just after midnight. Cole Hawker is coming back to his alma mater. Going to go up against Reed Brown, current Oregon runner, All-American indoors. Christian Noble, the man who should have been the Division II national champion. And gosh, it is. I'm holding myself back from not talking about that disqualification for uh, throwing some bows. It was, uh, oh my gosh, I got to hold myself back. But the coach who had the runner who got second place who protested that and got Noble DQ'd, um, I hope that guy is proud of his national title banner for his uh, his runner who got outkicked the last 50 because that was some cheap, cheap thrills by that guy. So I am all in on Christian Noble, who has gone sub 340 as well in Division Two. There's another question for another day. Well, well, I'm showing my producer here. Put this in the notes for, for next time. Will David Ribich's record go down in Division Two this year? 337. It is possible, depending on how this one goes. We've also got Josh Thompson, who was second place in the indoor trials for the 1500 meters. So a pretty good field right there. The next event I wanted to bring up is the men's 5000 meters. Similar to Hawker, you've got his sidekick Cooper Tier making the return to Oregon. And there's a good field of a few more Oregon guys, including Aaron Bienenfeld, cross-country All-American. But we also have the Wisconsin guys. We have Olin Hacker, who just balled out at the national meet. Jackson Sharp, who was the anchor leg to Wisconsin's DMR. And the Big Ten cross-country champion, Bob Liking. King Bob hitting the track here. That's going to be fun to watch. Last one I got to bring up as far as traditional races is the men's 3,000 meter steeplechase. Mason Furlick of the Very Nice Track Club, Bernard Keeter, American at the Olympics last year, Jackson Messler, Oregon alum, he's coming back unattached, Ryoma Aoki, who just took down Evan Jager last week. He's going to be in this field too. But the biggest event of Oregon Relays. Those ones I mentioned are all Friday night. The biggest one is going to be Saturday night. Oregon guys, or Oregon alum, I should say, are going for the 4 by mile world record. It's going to be James West, Cole Hawker, Cooper Tier, and Matt Wisner. So 1549 is the current 4 by mile record. They're trying to take it down. Meat is going to be... On Runner Space Plus, and uh, like I said, Friday night and Saturday night. There you go. Not much going on besides that, but next week is going to be a lot of track and field. Gina Relays at Hillsdale College, 
Penn Relays, Drake Relays, and the Peyton Jordan Invitational at Stanford will be back. So much going on, but there still is some good track to watch. So as we wrap up the show, first thing, I'm so sorry we we only have a few seconds to give this shout out, but it is a big shout out nonetheless. Our good friends of the program, Charles and Sarah, who ran the Boston Marathon. Charles with a 307, Sarah with a 332. Both, I'm proud of both of them. And uh, I knew Charles had a good one in him, but I didn't know he was going to beat Molly Seidel. So good for you, my man. Absolutely cooking. Technically beat Molly Seidel in this one. But like I said, uh, wrapping up the show here, quick rundown of our closing announcements. First of all, if you would like to get in contact with the show, we have an email address, chiptimepod at gmail.com, chiptimepod at gmail.com for your questions, potential topics you would like answered, or tell me your 1500 meter favorite for this year's outdoor national meet. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five-star rating on Spotify or Apple. If you do the Apple option, drop in some text with a review. We read all reviews on the show, and we're pushing 40 of them. So let's get that up. Lastly, if you would like to join the Chip Time Strava group, all you have to do is follow me on Strava, and I will get you added in. So thanks for listening. Keep working hard, and we'll see you next time.